am Features Editor Jan Wadi here at the San Antonio Express News, and we have a full house today. We're joined by the Hayden owner, Adam Lampenstein, and um, Executive Chef at the Hayden, Bill Corbett, along with uh, Taste Team writers Mike Sutter and Chuck Blount. So um, now, we, of course, we don't need an occasion to celebrate uh, their uh, pastrami sandwich, their best-selling menu item, but... Um, January 14th, this Saturday, is National um, Hot Pastrami Sandwich Day, so I guess you know where to go now. So let's hear a little more about it. Yeah, I opened up the Hayden. I uh, grew up in Dallas, so I grew up eating. There's, I mean, like like it is in New York, there's a lot of delis that uh, were open that are no longer there. So I just have fond memories of there's a place called Cindy's. If anybody's from Dallas, remember a place called Cindy's on uh, Coyton uh, uh, Central Expressway. That was open and it was just like a bagels and had, you know, pastrami. I mean, all the classic whitefish and all that stuff and uh, a place called Cindy's. And I just have great memories of that kind of thing. And I moved to El Paso after culinary school. It opened up like a neighborhood restaurant and didn't really have any. It was just kind of a neighborhood restaurant, uh, no particular identity, just kind of a, a cool neighborhood spot. So when I moved to San Antonio, like I love diners. Like I'm an old soul. I always love the look of old diners, the old booths, just the, the the comfortness, the familiarity, like the wait, the waiters, all personality, you know, just kind of a, a cool neighborhood, all-purpose spot. And I did not find that when I moved here. So I'm like, I'm gonna, I'll open one. And I wanted to have kind of an angle. And I'm like, what is a better throwback to the old diners in like, you know, New York that opened with immigrants and they all had their stamp, whether, you know, Greek or or their, their history, right? So like my history is obviously growing up Jewish. So I wanted to have kind of a delicatessen angle I didn't want to be like a sandwich shop because to make money in restaurants, you got to have alcohol. So I want to have a bar and I wanted to be open late. And I think that was part of the business plan from the beginning. But I want to have that as a really essential part because there's nowhere. There's a couple places here you can get, you know, some of those items, but nothing kind of that I grew up with. So I wanted to kind of bring that. So I kind of wanted to merge the old school diner with kind of the, the delicatessen and kind of a modern version of it. Kind of like what would that look like today? And then your menu item uh it's inspired by Curb Your Enthusiasm. So yeah, I mean, we're I mean, huge. Uh, Bill and I both, both huge. Seinfeld. I, mean, I grew up in the '90s, uh-huh. so as a kid, I watched I watched Seinfeld while I was you know still running, and also I watched every night at dinner. You, you had Seinfeld at six and Wings at six thirty. I remember that in, the, in like the mid '90s, and watched the rerun to Seinfeld every single night. So, uh, yeah, huge I, Seinfeld fan. When I started working there, Adam was talking about wanting to put a picture of uh, Larry David on the wall. And I said, well, I can do you one better. I can put Larry David on your menu. And he's like, what do you mean? He's like, well, there was that episode where he had a sandwich named after him, you know, and we looked it up and we saw what the ingredients were. And I think the one thing we changed was Sable over to Lox because it, it but it also ties in really nicely with the restaurant itself because we have these ingredients like the smoked whitefish and these locks that we do in house that are just really superior to, I think, anybody else in the market. And it's a way to highlight all that stuff together, like in a sandwich, you know? And so you get to have this very unique thing that's very special to us, and it fits completely into our menu. You know, you're not, like, pushing something where, why does this stick out like a sore thumb? It fits just so nicely in it. And then it's that nice thing between the two of us yeah. where it's like, yeah. And it's so fun how people come in and, like, point out that we have, like, the Elaine's Big Salad on the menu. And then I, like, went a little overboard. <laughs> I designed the weekend brunch menu myself. And there's the soup Nazis on there. <laughs> And then there's a picture of Ted Danton and, and uh, Larry David. And yeah, it's just like, it's like having fun. I mean, the food's serious. Like I want to take, and that's what we say, like thoughtful, not overthought. Like I want everything on the menu that we do. Like we smoke our own turkey and like, you know, pastrami and we do it all in house and little things that we don't have to do, but it just, it makes a better, 
it makes a better product. Yeah, and, and that smoked turkey Ted Danson sandwich made it onto our top ten yeah, sandwiches. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, absolutely, of, of the whole year list. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, that was that was fighting with the pastrami, which is why we're here today. Well, well, the, 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 like I like I mentioned, the pastrami was right there too. Like I could have went either way. <laughs> But question though, with Larry David, if he ever comes to town, does he have an exclusive invitation to the Hayden? I would love to. I would love to tag him somewhere. I was eating at a, I was at a restaurant in, in LA called Squirrel, and they have a Larry David plate, and it is like think of smoked whitefish, and there's like I think sable, and it's like they're owed to it. So I'm like, why don't we have an owed? You know, like same thing. Like we yeah. have we have ours. So no. If you ever stops in San Antonio, we, we got a spot oh, for yeah. you. Always, <laughs> always. There was a joke if we even got a cease and desist letter from Larry David. That would be a victory. Now, I did um, read, Mike, in one of your articles that you recommended having it with a matzo ball soup. Is that right? Oh, good heavens. Yeah. You, a soup and sandwich combination like that, matzo ball and pastrami at the Hayden. I think you have two forms that are at the very top of what you can do with those two uh, a sandwich and a soup. Oh yeah, when I run that to a table, and because you, you can get it whatever side you want, but when they pair it themselves with those two, uh, it's just like you got the perfect meal. And then I get a, and then I, we also went through, a, I used to grow up eating uh, the celery, Dr. Brown's, which it's really hard to find. They make a celery soda. So we have like a celery, they call it celery. And it's a super old delicatessen thing too. And so we, we I always want to have a celery soda. So we kind of have our own, we made a celery syrup and we make a celery uh, soda. So that's like the trifecta right there. And then if you get a white dip, white fish dip as an appetizer, you've really done it. So <laughs> now what, what's in the celery soda? It's just, there's a, it's like celery seed and uh, I think there's juniper and uh, white peppercorns. And it's like, it's sweet, but not overly sweet. And you really get a real celery flavor out of it, but it's uh, it's good. Which is what you're looking for in your soda, right? Yeah. <laughs> It's like a juice, a juice soda. <laughs> well, it just pairs so well with pastrami sandwiches. Oh, no, exactly and, right. and it's... And we've looked into trying to do like Doc Browns and some of these other places, but there's just such supply chain issues. You know, like we've even reached out to people from HEB that used to be a former supplier. And he's like, the only place you can find is some backwater thing through like European channels type of stuff going on with these guys right now. So to the fact that we like, okay, well, like we'll just make it in house and have like an even better version of this, you know, and some of the stuff that we do with our menu, you know, if you look at like that Ted Danson, it's just taking the, the simple ingredients like turkey, coleslaw. Russian dressing, but then, and then the bread and just dialing into like, how can we make this the best possible? You know? So it's, you know, making sure that we have a simple enough rub that like, everybody can do, but uh, you know, we use like mayonnaise to make sure that it's nice and moist and you have the salt, pepper, and a little brown sugar to add the sweetness. You're smoking it at the correct temperature. The Russian dressing that we do, we use uh, an atomic horseradish to help dial up the, the flavoring of that, you know? And so it's taking like the simple basic things, but just showing each thing like the respect that it deserves and that's how you do have something that's really like incredible and amazing and you don't have to really overthink it, you know? Like the fact that that was the sandwich that got put on there, like it, it makes me so pleased with like the entire team that it was a turkey sandwich was the one that got on the menu. Because every restaurant in San Antonio and hotel and everything has a turkey sandwich. And the fact that this is the turkey sandwich that got in the top 10 on this, it was like, yeah, like. I was like, I texted the team that night when I saw it, like send the link to it. Like, guys, this is what we do when we work together as a team. Like, and this that is was, incredible. That was Chuck Blount's pick. Yeah. yeah. As a as a top ten, this is Chuck Brisket Blount, <laughs> <laughs> and he goes he goes for the turkey sandwich. And you talked about that kind of aesthetic that goes into doing making your own Thousand Island dressing. Yeah. Um, for the for the sandwich, 
I love that aesthetic as it flows through the Hayden's philosophy through its um, through its whole menu, like the bar, all of the house-made syrups. Um, it makes for um, a really you can you can have a choose your own adventure experience every time you go into the Hayden. Yeah, it, it good segue into the brisket, but the uh, <laughs> you, you you guys use the brisket as your base for the pastrami, right? Yeah, right. and but one thing one thing that you do that um, you know you know I've I've been to Katz's uh, Deli in New York City where that's just nonstop thin strips. You guys cut it pretty thick to where, uh, as a South Texan, you. You, you know you're eating pastrami, but you're also dialed in and that I've eaten hundreds of brisket sandwiches in my life. And you're hitting in on those notes, too, with the smoke and the way you all do things, too. Was that like a was was that like a decision that 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 you just made you wanted to go down that road for familiarity purposes? Or was it something that you just thought tasted better with, with a thicker cut? Oh, you know. I stepped into this role about three months after it opened. So it was already kind of established that that was the way it was done. But when you kind of start going and start tampering with things, the one thing that you can't is just the way that we cook that brisket. You know, so we steam that overnight. So by the point that it comes out and once it's cooled, it's still very, very tender. And so to try and put that on a deli slicer and to start slicing that thing up, you're going to rip that thing apart and you're going to have pastrami all over the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And even when we slice it thicker with that, there's still like scrap that's left over. And that's what we turn into like our pastrami gravy and find other ways to do it. And so it's kind of the, the two things, right? It's the necessity of this is the way that we cook it and this is the way that's going to have to be sliced. But also it's. I can tie this into that homage of like South Texas brisket. And then when the guy's like, I'm showing them how to slice a brisket, you know, it's, or the pastrami, you know, it is like slicing a brisket, you know? So it's like one of the same thing and they can understand the concept of it, you know, because, you know, it's like whenever you slice a whole brisket, like there's the the part on the bottom, you know, where you got to like slice this this way and then you have the cap and then you got to twist the knife over to this way and it's two different styles. Oh, you so, make or break a brisket by how you slice it. Yeah, yeah. No. yeah. It's, yeah. it's not like it, but it's like everything. Like it's, it's when you start looking at the details on simple stuff, there is a hundred details that go into something that's very simple, you know, and that's really what on our best days at the Hated, that's really what we're dialing into. And I think, and there's some education because it is brisket in a lot of places, you know, even Italian, you know, they order pastrami, you know, it's, it's a, you know, cooked product. And so you come in and you deli slice and it's, you know, glued together or, or, you know, it's, it's chilled. So it's brisket and, you know, you'll get barbecue and you get brisket and brisket's a fatty cut. You know, there's lean and there's fatty, but there's also like, you know, marbling and then, you know, there's, there's a, so when we cook it and we, we trim it as we portion it, but there's still going to be fat. So we do get people send it back. Thinking that, you know, you slice it thin, there's not, you know, there's, we've tried other cuts of it and just brisket is as far superior to it. But normally you go get barbecue, you get a plate and, you know, you can cut around the fat. But when it's on a sandwich, you don't see it as much. So it's still on us to trim it. But then you want to, it's, it's a delicate balance. But you want to leave enough fat on there for the flavor. But too much fat, someone's, you know, there's fat on it. Well, yeah, it's brisket. So it's kind of, it's like barbecue. I mean, it, there's no, and it's, and each, each cut of brisket is a little different, you know. Well, Bill, so. we're walking into this with a lot of assumptions. Uh, we already know how the how the pastrami is made, and you mentioned that it's steamed overnight. Yeah, but you left out a dozen <laughs> steps before Starts that, <laughs> and I think it's important that people yeah. know kind of what goes into what's the process behind that. So the the process that we are at currently with our pastrami is that we start by taking it in and we brine it. 
And so basically the brine that we're using is a, a corned beef based brine. So that's something I was like already very familiar with before coming to the Hayden because having a uh, Irish family background, you know, corned beef was always something like, you know, on St. Patrick's Day, like we would have corned beef. It took me to be an adult to realize this was not a common occurrence in everybody else's household. So that's something I've always held to esteem. And so uh, really worked on having like a, a really good brine for that. And so it has like all those nice like like cinnamon and clove and you have like a little anise in there and coriander. So it just gives like a really a fragrancy to the the meat. So once that's done, then we take it out of that bath. How long is that? Yeah. 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 So yeah, so it's about like five to six days of where we're at right Good now. Oh God. But now and now I was talking to Adam just walking in, in the parking lot about how like we might need to up this up to like ten or twelve days. Like that's so I mean it's constant improvement, right? So then after we've brined it for, you know, that amount of time, then they take it out, we rinse it off, and then they rub it down with uh, coriander, caraway, and uh, whole black pepper. And so that's what we then smoke it with for about six hours with hickory smoke. Then we take it out, and then that's when you put it into, uh, we get like the heavy hotel pans with uh, the grates on the bottom to make sure you have the water in there. And then wrap that up really tight with plastic wrap and aluminum foil and then let those go in the oven overnight for like 225 degrees. So that's why when you come out in the morning, the whole kitchen smells of pastrami and you have this nice tender jiggly brisket that's just like ready to just fall apart if you look at it funny. So. Now, I, now I'm thinking the barbecue guys who's, well, we smoked this for 12 hours. Let's talk to this guy. Well, yeah. Is there is there a, is there a, a pastrami whisperer that stays around and, and babysits it the entire time to the steamer? Or, or? Uh, well, it's, we've gotten it to where really it's just making sure that we we keep it at that low temperature. You know, there is like has been a couple instances where somebody like accidentally like cranks the oven up and stuff, and it's like trying to get the guys to understand. It's like no, it has to be like at this temperature. You know, like this is steam production here. You know, you can't. It's very easy to make sure that this stays correctly, but if somebody doesn't do something right, then it's really going to go bad fast. And that's like how they do it at Cass's, you know, in the back, they've got the, you know, and they're, they're steaming it and they're pulling it out and cutting it because you do, you, you brine it, obviously it's a pres preservation method. So you're, you know, you're pulling out some of the stuff. So you need to add, like, add the moisture back in. So the steaming really does help it, you know, become super moist and, uh, you know, you cut it thick and it's not, you know, it's not dry. It's not getting lean. You even get the lean parts. It's still super moist. Yeah. So you make that wicked pastrami gravy with the debris from the pastrami. What else do you do with it? Does it still go into the nachos there? Do you do you do a pastrami nacho? Oh, we used we to do a fry, right? We did a fry, but then we couldn't keep fries. up. But we sold so many biscuits and gravy. We were we like, we were not having it. Like, we used to have too much surplus, right? And to me, as a business owner, I'm like, this brisket's expensive, right? I mean, it goes barbecue, it's expensive. So I'm like, how do we take, and we're rubbing this stuff, and some of it's falling off into the water when you steam it, right? I'm like, how do we say, this is like gold here. Even the fat is gold, because it's been rubbed with all this stuff. So then that's how we make our roux, and then you make a gravy with it. And then now it's like, we're having trouble keeping up, you know, with it. Before it was, you know, we had too much of it. Now it's like, we're but struggling we, sometimes to, to yeah. have enough gravy. Well, we use it for the, the biscuits and gravy. And then we have our chicken fried chicken dish we do. So that's our play. Oh, on your like schnitzel. The, the, the schnitzel we put the pastrami gravy in. That's right. The pork chop schnitzel we put the pastrami gravy in. That's right. Don't sleep on that pork chop <laughs> schnitzel. It's magnificent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and then uh, now for National Pastrami Day then, what kind of prep are you going into this with? Like how much, how much are you going to be making? Like because it's going to be – 
it's going to be an event. It is. We're definitely doubling up on the, the number of or brisket. tripling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so making, we make sauerkraut ourselves. So I saw him making a huge batch of sauerkraut yesterday. And yeah, we make uh, a like a deli mustard for it and make sure, make sure that the Swiss is ready and all yeah. the all the accoutrement. Uh, as well, yeah, because we we took me a long time to find the right bread too. So we there's a place out of out of Houston called Slodo, uh, kind of like an, like a large scale artisanal kind of bakery, and we get the deliveries from there about four days a week. And uh, yeah, you got to up your order. You know, you got to you got to plan for this stuff because it's not you can't get it the next day. You got to plan a couple of days out to get your orders in. So um, I hope we're hope we're stressed out and it's it's crazy, well, especially <laughs> when it takes so long to prepare with all the brining. So do you have several going at a time, or are you ready to put some more in as soon as one comes? Oh out yeah, of the brine? yeah. One goes yeah. in, one goes out. That's yeah. kind of the way. And then we make sure that we have enough for that amount of time. But you know, we've we've really been beating the drum and been fortunate enough to get a lot of good noise coming out of what we've been doing over the last several weeks to where we've naturally just been busy. You know, uh, we were talking to a bunch of our suppliers the other day and they're saying like, everybody's really dead and everybody's really slow. And then we look at the numbers at the end of the week, the past couple, and it's still been like up there. So, I mean, it's just getting everybody on board with like, we just got to keep pushing guys. Like it's just going to, it's only picking up. It's not slowing down right now. Now I saw that the regular pastrami and Swiss sandwich comes with six ounces, but you can double it. Do you recommend doing that? (laughs) So we used to have the old school way. If you go to Cass's, it's just mustard, rye bread and pastrami. So we used to have like the old school way, but then everybody—I mean, it's so good with the crowd and the mustard on it, and so you can you can just double it old school way. If you're a purist, you know you're, you're you know you want you want to just like you know, let's just cut through it. Let's just see how how you got how we stack up just on the pastrami itself, you know, and the mustard and bread. Uh, but yeah, double is good. And I would I would double it with go all the way. Get the get the cheese, and that's kind of, people ask if we have a Reuben, and we don't really have a Reuben. You can kind of get a Reuben, you know, but I, I think it's, I love mustard. I'm a mustard guy. It's a, it's a good it's blend good between, mustard. you know, a Reuben and that classic like pastrami on rye, you know, because I remember like the first time, so my family, you know, from New York, you know, my dad would take us into the city. We'd go to like Carnegie and Katz's, you know, and being younger, it's like, well, what goes on this pastrami sandwich? He's like, it's just mustard and rye bread. Like, that's it. Like, just enjoy it, you know? And so, but there's a nice mix of like having that sauerkraut as that acidity and then like the Swiss cheese on it. Cause we're not a kosher kitchen and sometimes we get mixed up into that. And we were talking to some of our friends over at the Jewish community center uh, about kosher kitchens in San Antonio. And he said that they currently are the only kosher kitchen is the one out of the Jewish community center that is uh, full on kosher. He said there's somebody out in the. Elon or like over in the rim area that's talking about opening up a kosher kitchen. But right now, like there's really nobody that's. So I'm sure the old, you know, pastrami on just rye was because there's no dairy, right? So you're mixing yeah. your, your appetizing places like your Russ and Daughters, which is amazing. When you get your locks and your white fish and your bagels and cream cheese and you go to Katz's, you know, back in the day to get your, you know, your meat and, and bread and you didn't mix it too. So, but obviously, you know, we're. We were definitely not kosher. I got your pork schnitzel on the menu. <laughs> and we, can, we got candied bacon. We didn't talk about the candied bacon on the Ted Danson, but, you know, like uh, uh, we try to, you know, marry marry both of the, those things. And some of these are your mom's recipes, right? Yeah, we were talking earlier. I mean, we used to have a chopped liver. That was my mom's chopped liver that we still get the old, you know, the old people are, are, are sad. You know, no young people really want to chop liver, but uh, we, we just signed a lease to open up a, a new location up north. And so we're going to obviously have chopped liver and you kind of feel your audience out and what's, you know, what sells and what doesn't. But yeah, all well, of these are, you know, a lot of stuff, like a lot of traditional stuff, not written down. It's just a taste. And so we do lockies. My mom definitely didn't make potato lockies in a waffle iron. <laughs> but but I saw that at a place in L.A. that I went to and I tried to like 
you know, kind of reverse engineer it. That's a great idea. How do we get this? But how do I get the seasoning to taste what I grew up with? And how do we make the applesauce my mom made or the applesauce that she made? And just like, yeah, in the matzo ball soup, like how do I recreate my grandma's matzo ball soup recipe and all those kinds of things. So yeah, it's a- But it's also like taking the the spirit of the the thoughtful, not overthought. So when we were developing the the chicken liver recipe, you know, we had a, a bunch of line cooks that had all been like sous chefs and chefs at other like the, the high end restaurants. You know, we had guys in there from like Gwendolyn and the you know, Silo and you know these other higher end places. And so we were like, all right, guys, we're gonna do like a, a chicken liver on the menu. Oh, okay, well I got this. So let me go get some shallots and some sherry, and like we're gonna do it, and, it's, and, and it's like gonna be this pure, you know, like the mousseline. And Adam's just like. No, 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 no. Like, this is not what I'm looking for. And he's like, Bill, come here. And so he gets me in the office and he puts his mom on speakerphone. And he's like, you need to explain to Bill how we're going to make this chopped liver. And she's like, oh, yeah, no, it's really simple. You know, you, you roast the chicken liver, caramelize, use the schmaltz, do in some like hard boiled eggs, but make sure you have some nice texture and everything. And so like we have like the so, a food processor hit pulse of, you know, like yeah. you want it to be. And, and so, yeah, so that's how, you know, because it's. Keep it simple. You know, it's it's just keeping things where they should be, not trying to push the envelope on them, but just dialing into like what makes it special and unique and really just respecting it from that. And that's what people can really taste. I see a future for your mom as a restaurant <laughs> consultant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I grew up, she had a catering company for like 15 years. And I, I grew up and she, yeah, oh yeah. She'll come in and if our matzo ball soup's not there, or she'll let me know. And I appreciate it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I got a tough audience. Yeah. That's the critic Nothing. you need. That is the magic. critic, that's right, no, yeah. Yeah. While we're on this subject, can I ask one quick question that I love to ask all Yeah, Because yeah. one time I interviewed Mark Lohan because I, I, I asked him, what is a chef? Because like, I feel like that kind of informs the person like what their definition of their job is. Uh -huh. And some people have some really clinical definition, oh, a chef is this or this or that. Uh, Mark Wahan told me a chef is anyone who gives a shit. <laughs> and like for me personally, like if you can poach an egg or make a French omelet, those aren't necessarily like super hard things to do, but they require you actually doing it over and, and intent. Yeah, yeah. What is a chef for y'all? What is it? What is what is that definition? I think it's an evolving definition and it's the stuff that you're looking at in the industry right now and there's a change. You know, we were having a conversation on the drive over here about like modern leadership and where does it go from where it's been to where it, can it be? And it was funny. I think you just asked one of the cooks in the back, you know, about like what is like leadership and stuff. And it was the, the detail, the focus for detail. And the other part I would add into that is consistency. And so uh, chef to me always means you are like the leader of cooks is basically where the deviation comes from, you know, cause I had a dad that was a really successful manager and leader. And he once told me, he's like, I don't need to know how to do something as long as I can understand the people that are involved in doing it. And therefore leadership is something that you can transpose onto different things. And so really it's that, that leadership piece that a chef brings into a kitchen. You know, that's, that's the, the feeling that's different between kitchens that don't have like a true leadership and the kitchens that do, you know, that's, that's the thing. And so, uh, it's it's developing and working towards you know being that focused on detail and then having the consistency, but it comes from within. It's something that doesn't come from without. And I think even the term chef is something that is almost like controversial at this point, you know. And so it's never anything that like I enforce, you know. To me, that's something like you can't tell somebody to call you chef. It's something that they have chosen to do, you know. And that's something that you just have to have like 
that thing where they want to follow you. You know, if they want to follow you, then they're going to call you that if they want to. You know, it's not something that's forced upon. So that's kind of my rambling definition. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know know when I was working in kitchens, um, my fellow cooks and I, we were – we were just cooks. Yeah. And um, uh, it was like herding cats. Yeah. So anybody that could come in and show us leadership, we, we were going to follow that person. Yeah, no. And I think it's getting, to me, it's like getting someone to do something when you're not watching them. Like to me. And, I, and that's what he's talking about. We had a, we were training a new guy today. And, I, and we have a guy who's training him who I think is great. And it's like all the stuff you say in your head when you make something, make sure you communicate that to him. Because like all those details to me and I'm on him and every, every day, like, like, the way the freaking sauce trips off a chicken sandwich, the amount of le- I, mean, I, I am I am obsessive about the details, but to me that's what makes a good restaurant or a good any good business, right? It's like the de- you, you guys eat everybody eats out, or you you know go to you know your dentist, or I mean, like the, how do you how you treat it from the moment you get in to the professionalism and how they like how it's a it's not just one thing. A lot of restaurants that have great food, they go out of business. A lot of places that don't have great the food's okay and they they thrive. So it's like it's a serendipitous thing of like how how it all fits together. And you have to have good leadership in the kitchen and good, good leadership in the front. And it starts with like the owner. And I hope like I'm, you know, cleaning out trash cans or the grease. I mean, it starts with like, here's how we do it. And we do like how you do one thing is how you do everything. I think that attention to detail on, on anything, you know, and you have a bad experience with someone like, how do I reach out to them? How do I, you know, apologize? Because there's, you know, like now everyone's a critic, right? You can go online and people that come in and, you know, it makes my blood boil like looking at Yelp and those things. But if you can step back and look at like the nuggets from people, and you might not have to agree with everything they say, but if someone's saying this is too salty or this is too fatty or what, you know, the brisket, then it's like maybe there's something you need to look at because we can all improve. Like we all can get better. And I think if you ever get to that point, even a chef, like a chef ever thinks like I, no one can tell me anything. It's like you, you should leave because we can always <laughs> learn. And there's chefs that are, you know, 70 years old, you know, like they've been doing this forever. They can always can learn something, you know. And so I think you always want to be learning and getting better. Yeah, you know, I, always, I, think, I always joke around kinda, with the cooks because – I saw an interview with Phil Jackson one time on leadership and he was coach. Talking, yeah. The coach from the bulls. And he was talking about the most influential book he ever read was called Zen mind, beginner mind. So I'm like, well, let me read this book. And so it gets in this whole thing about like a, a Zen mind is a beginner mind versus an expert mind. So it was, has this whole definition of an expert mind is like a closed loop. If you know how to do everything, then nobody could teach you anything. And therefore like you're closed off. But if you enter every situation with a beginner's mind where it's an open loop, then there's endless possibilities of what you can do and where you can go. And so I always like try to instill that with some of my line cook guys, you know, especially when they're starting off. I'm like, always be beginner mind, never be expert mind. You know, like it's always be that way. I'm starting to think that you don't run a Jewish deli between you saying how you do one thing is how you do everything. And what you just said, I think you're running a Zen deli. (laughs) 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 Yeah, We have lots of conversations on leadership and, you know, I mean, that's, that's really important too. It's a whole business. It's a culture, you know, um, but it's, you know, and hopefully, you know, it drips down to like how your, your service is, how the food is. I mean, like it's, and you know, it's, it's. Well, a, you mentioned that in your story about, about Adam. Oh, these two know how to work the room. I tell you what. <laughs> yeah, We're yeah, schmoozers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, never, I was a really shy kid too. I'm like, I just like, and now I just, you know, like you know how to schmooze. Yeah, yeah, well, so. yeah, well, but you're but you're you're hustling and bustling and, and you're shaking hands and uh, I don't I didn't see you kissing any babies, but I don't know if that's out of, out of the realm of possibility. Maybe right after, right after you left, I'm sure. Right before you got there. Depends how post COVID we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's true. Yeah, we gotta we gotta get a little further away from that. But no, uh, yeah, I, I had a I had a wonderful experience uh, during my trip for this story. So it was great. So yeah, just you guys are really killing it, man. Really I suddenly kill- have a craving for a hot pastrami sandwich. <laughs> well, we, we got you covered. We got you covered. Hey, we don't have to wait till Saturday, do we? Yeah. <laughs> Y'all are open every day except Monday. Right? Every Monday. Monday, yeah. I mean, we open at yeah ten, and we've had you know people come in at ten o'clock in the morning, you know, and get a pastrami sandwich. And the person with them gets a you know bag on locks or eggs or whatever. So you can get your pastrami sandwich, you know, the minute we're open to the minute we're closed. But that's that's the fun, especially with our all day menu that we run from ten a.m. to three, and it's really trying to keep that diner philosophy. You know, when I was interviewing with Adam for the position, he's like, "What does a diner mean to you?" It means to me that you could have a bowl of oatmeal and a steak of potatoes on the table. And it doesn't matter whether it's five o'clock in the morning, eight o'clock at night, or whatever time of the day it is. That still makes sense in a diner. You know, and so it's trying to have it where we really conscientiously blended the the breakfast and the lunch menus together, because to me, like that is just being a diner. You know, I know it's very popular now to have the the all day brunch spots, but to me, the diner was the original all day brunch spot. Just nobody called it brunch. You know, so when we see like an order where it's like a barbacoa omelet and a pastrami sandwich at two thirty in the afternoon, and I'm like, now we're doing it, guys. Now, now we're dinering. You know, don't tell anybody, but I'm stealing that line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the diner was the original all day brunch spot. <laughs> you know, there, you know, there's always a lot of confusion though, and I, I was looking this up too, and it it. Uh, how would you describe exactly what the difference is between pastrami and corned beef? Oh, good question. So it's. Corned beef is basically when you take it out of the brine, that would be referred to as corned beef. And boil it. Yeah, because right? corn is, is the whole world of like pickling or conserving it. So you had to do that to extend the life of beef before pre-refrigeration. And then if you, yeah, then smoking it, you take the, the right, the, and, the ramp and, to and pastrami. pastrami yeah. is more of a technique, like once it comes out. So if you look into uh, pastrami, like the first things that were pastrami were actually, I think, duck breasts is what I saw in my research. That could be wrong. But I feel like pastrami is then the, the technique that goes further. I had a joke with a friend of mine uh, who he was telling me how he smoked his corned beef for St. Patrick's Day. I'm like, so you made a pastrami. You didn't make corned beef. He's like, what are you talking about? It's like, yeah, that's that's called a pastrami now. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you all so much for joining us Yeah, today. we appreciate it. Thank, thank you for the opportunity yeah. to, to share the story. We'll all be right. thinking about you on Saturday. <laughs> National Pastrami Day, okay? Yeah, and our regular brunch service. That's we'll always. be thinking about yeah. you all. <laughs> all the business, that's right. Yeah. <laughs>